Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Friday, July 9th edition of the Basement Academy. As we come to the end of another week, it seems to have gone quite quickly to me. I don't know about you. Uh, thanks for taking a few moments out of your day. Hopefully, these will be uh, minutes well spent. Uh, invite you to listen to the end today as we wrestle with a pretty challenging passage of Scripture. Uh, I want to begin with Psalm 69. It's a long psalm, and I think I'm going to read it all. And part of me wanted to shorten it, but but I think I think I'm going to read the whole thing. This is for the director of music to the tune of Lilies. Hmm, wonder what that tune sounded like. It is a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God, my guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. 
I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. Psalm 69. Hopefully you heard some familiar lines about um, uh, zeal for your house consumes me. The insults who fall on you fall on me when Jesus went to cleanse the temple. It was this passion and zeal uh, for God's house. Uh, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst, fulfilled, and it's cited in the Gospels, fulfilled in the death of Jesus when they offered him the sponge soaked with vinegar. Um, may their place be deserted. This was spoken of Judas. They had to replace him after Judas killed himself, hanged himself. So this was fulfilled. It was prophesied that this would happen. His place was to be deserted, but then they went and drew straws for a 12th apostle. And so Psalm 69 shows up at different points along the way uh, in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus. Um, but it comes out of David's experience. So there's some experience of distress that feels as if he's just being covered by the waters, being, being flooded. And that's how it feels, right? <laughs> when we're in it, um, be it an emotional crisis, relational, um, financial, health crisis, we just, at times, we, we just want to give up and just sink <laughs> under the flood waters. But it's a calling out and a crying out. I have always loved this portion of the, where it says, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. I think this is, it should be every pastor's psalm, <laughs> every pastor's prayer, that the people of God who hope in God not be disgraced because of my words, my actions, things I do or don't do, right? And so may my life never be a cause for stumbling for the people of God. So may I invite your prayers uh, to that end for me, uh, for Eric, for Lucille, for the staff, uh, for those who... Uh, we give ourselves uh, as servants. This has become our vocation, right? This is what we do. This is our, our calling and career. And the last thing we would want would, would ever be uh, to be a cause for stumbling uh, and disgrace for the people of God. And this sits as a nice backdrop to, to our study today. And so this looks to be our 27th study in Ephesians. We've been at this for a while now. Um. And so let me read chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. This is the third component of the household code. So 
the, the governing scripture is submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to husbands, but husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children to parents, but parents do not exasperate your children, but, but nurture them gently, bring them up uh, into the instruction of the Lord. And then finally, we turn to this, chapter 6, verse 5, slaves. Ooh. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> so this is in the household code. So Paul is instructing uh, these Ephesians and others who will read. Okay, in the Roman Empire, we have to understand when this was written. <clears throat> the, the, the husband-wife relationship, the marital relationship, the parent-child relationship, and then the reality of household servants, okay? And, and they're more than just, you know, um, paid workers, though, though there was pay, actually. But, but, but they were slaves, okay? They were owned by people for a season, uh, many uh, did were manumitted. They could buy their way out of slavery at a certain age, and there were there were um, customs and laws um, uh, about all that. But the first thing you need to say is a, there's a sad legacy within the church with regard to this passage, and frankly, maybe these passages here in Ephesians, the the misuse of scripture to support abuse be it abuse of a wife. Wife, you haven't submitted to me. And so the, the, the punishment, the violence, uh, domestic um, and, and sexual abuse of wives or of children, okay? And so you have children, you need to obey. You're not obeying. And then spanking in some way or harming in some way verbally or otherwise being violent towards children. And then of course, in the American experience, uh, we certainly uh, understand uh, the, the abuse of, of Scripture that, that uh, Christians, I'll put that in air quotes, those who profess to be Christians, <clears throat> uh, would use this Scripture to often abuse uh, their, uh, their property, their slaves. And so w it's just a sad legacy. In the same way, we have psalms that speak of the sad legacy of Israel. Um, we, we have in the Kings and Chronicles the, the, the narrative, but in the psalms, we have certain psalms in particular, Psalm uh, 106, uh, it's either 105 or 106, seems to recite all the worst things that Israel did from the golden calves and other idolatry and, and the like. This is just part of our story. It's part of the story of the church. And, and then the, when you think about the church in America in particular, and sadly, some of these scriptures continue to be misused. Um, 
So, so I, I, I point that out. Second, maybe editorial comment before coming to the text itself. Is this passage a cause? Is it, is it, is it, is it reason to justify rejecting the Apostle Paul and his writings? There are some who believe that, both because of what he's written about wives being in submission to their husbands, that is perceived to be misogynistic, that is anti-woman, or because he does not reject slavery, he does not call for abolishing slavery, he's not an abolitionist, that therefore you cannot read the Apostle Paul. And so we scrape the whole Pauline testimony off the table. And there are some who would advocate for that, that if Paul were really an apostle of, of Christ and was really an apostle of freedom, as he says he is, he would have called for the abolition of all slaves in the Roman Empire. Um. I, for one, do not read Paul that way. I, I try to read in context, okay? Uh, my, my fear is that people who are reading Paul, we often read against the context of our current cultural situation rather than doing the patient, disciplined work of reading Scripture in its own historical and cultural context, in its own um, lexical or, you know, the, the, the words, what they meant to them, and, and then how... Uh, we might have to do some hard work. So the interpretive work uh, of, of Bible study, uh, and not everybody does it well. And I pray that those who hope in the Lord may not be disgraced because of the way I interpret the scripture. So again, pray for me. Um, uh, scholars estimate that at times up to 40% of the Roman Empire, again, we have to think Roman Empire, Okay, so go back to your, your history classes from college and, and the like. Up to 40% of the Roman Empire at certain times would have been slaves, doulos or douloi, okay? It was a social, economic, cultural fact of life. It was given, okay? The same way it is a fact of life that we drive cars that emit... <laughs> Uh, pollution, okay, you know, carbon monoxide and, and, and these other, what is it, fluorocarbons or wh whatever the, the thing is. It, our economy depends upon these realities and people are saying, well, we need a completely fossil fuel-free economy. Okay, how do we get there? And so there are people who are calling for it and so you might commend them, but it can't happen, okay? Our world is dependent upon it. Um, just heard this week that there are those, you know, in advocating electric cars and some are saying, no, that actually the, to generate that much electricity to power these actually burns more <laughs> carbons. So, you know, how do you reduce the carbon footprint? Energy is part of what drives our economy. Okay. So I'm saying that as an example, not to excuse, okay, but to acknowledge that there are social, cultural, um, economic realities that are just given at any snapshot in time. And at the snapshot in time that the Apostle Paul lived and wrote and was converted, the Roman Rome was in charge. Now, slavery has been practiced throughout the human family, not only in the Roman Empire and not only then in the founding 
in the early uh, decades of the American experiment. And so I'll, I'll, I'll finish with some reflections on how to deal with hard cultural realities. But we do have to understand that the Roman um, experience of slavery that Paul is writing about here is not equivalent to the New World or African slave trade. It, it's not the same thing. Race did not play into things. I've got some, some, some notes here. Um, race did not play into Roman slavery. Um, many Roman slaves could reasonably be expected to be freed, uh, to be emancipated or manumitted, uh, purchase their own freedom. Um, slaves did all kinds of jobs within, uh, uh, within the Roman Empire. So it was not simply household uh, servants. There were specialized uh, positions, uh, physicians. Uh, there, was, there was what we would call skilled jobs. Um, um, many would received education. That was just part of it. Um, so, so it was not the same as we think of uh, slavery in our own uh, American context. Again, uh, and then freed slaves often became Roman citizens, enjoyed um, and, and enjoyed uh, certain rights and would continue in relationship with their former master. So it was an economic reality. It was a social reality. Some would actually sell themselves into slavery to come under the protection of a paterfamilias so that they could have some stability in their life. And then over time, they could purchase their way uh, out of. So, so it's not the same thing. Okay. It's not saying that we ought to have slaves, it's acknowledging that what Paul, the context in which Paul is writing is not what most of us think about, okay? So, so there's that. What this portion of Ephesians is doing is continuing with the household code, but it's how Christians who have been brought into this saving relationship with Jesus Christ, so again, the theological foundations in Ephesians, the, the God's eternal plan to reconcile all things through Jesus Christ and to seal that work and empower that work through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the practical section of the book, chapters four, five, and six. And Paul is saying, here's how Christ transforms marriage. Here's how Christ transforms uh, the, the parent-child relationship. And here's how Christ transforms culture. Okay? that the Christian behaves differently. Husbands could treat their wives a certain way in Roman culture that was very demeaning and abusive, and, and, and Christian husbands do not do that. Uh, uh, parents would treat their children a certain way. Christian parents do not treat their children that way. Christian masters, again, part of the economic system, so masters would treat their slaves harshly, Christian masters will not do that. So it's a countercultural expression. He's, he's speaking, he speaks to the quote unquote subordinate, the wife, the child, the slave, but the call is really to the father, to the parent, and to the master. And so he speaks a transforming word to the Christian who finds themselves in that position of the doulos, the bondservant, the slave, okay, under the authority of one 
whom they may be out from that at some point, but during the season of uh, bond servanthood, that s serve your earthly master as if you were serving the heavenly master, as if you were serving the Lord. Do it as a slave, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to himself that way in some of his other letters. I, Paul, a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ, one to whom I owe allegiance, one to whom I am entrusted, whose care I'm entrusted, and in whose service I find myself. Okay? So, this this understanding of being a servant, a bond servant, a slave of Christ was something that Paul, an identity he even took to himself, though he was economically, culturally free, he understood himself to be one in servitude, in servitude uh, to a heavenly master. So, so slaves, <clears throat> so as wives are in submission and properly ordered to their husbands as children are properly ordered to their parents so slaves be properly ordered don't just serve when they're watching okay how does it say that obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you okay you know humans tend to do that right just even in our work relationships you know i remember some of my early uh, work situations when I was plying a shovel on uh, a construction job or working in retail, you know, you might kind of lean on the shovel a little bit. And all of a sudden the boss drives back up and, oh, you, you get busy again. Okay. And so, so you have to be doing something with your life, <laughs> something with your time. So, so serve as if you're serving the Lord, not only when your earthly master's watching you, because guess what? The heavenly master is always watching doing the will of God from your heart. So serve wholeheartedly, serve earnestly, serve as if to please the master. So, so, to, so render good service. Employees do well to apply this to their own lives. Render good service to your employer. Um, and so that's often lifted up as an application from this. So know that God, so speaking to the, to the servant, to the bondservant, the doulos, know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. And so it's this, this is the radical transformation. The gospel comes in and there is one who is watching, one who is over all, one who speaks to these realities and who will reward all who shows no favoritism, slave or free, male nor female, uh, Jew, no Greek, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus cuts down and abolishes and does away with those outward um, markings that we often uh, look at others and judge others towards. So that goes back to the, the Jew-Gentile controversy, again, uh, which sits as part of the backdrop of this, of this letter. So he turns then to masters. And so speaking to the slave, speaking how to render their service as unto the Lord and as slaves of Christ. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. And I, the way I understand that, treat your slaves the same way, knowing that the Lord shows no favoritism, that the Lord is watching, that the Lord rewards everyone. So you have a responsibility as a Christian master. If you have slaves in your employ, in, your, uh, in, in service to you, you have a responsibility to them. 
do not threaten them. Okay? So in the same way, fathers do not exasperate. Husbands, do not, do not punish or be harsh with your wives. That, that instruction isn't there, but the tenderness of laying down your life is given. Implied with that is husbands, you would never yell at your wife. You would never harm your wife. Your job is to lay down your life for her, okay? So in the same way, husbands are sacrificing the same way parents are not exasperating, but they're gently instructing, being a pediatrician. In the same way, masters do not threaten. That slave of yours is a human being made in God's image, one for whom Christ died, one who is a brother with you, Okay, particularly in a context where both are uh, in Christ. And so... This is what is countercultural. This is what turns things on its head. The instructions to fathers, the, the instructions to husbands, the instructions to fathers, the instructions to masters. It is countercultural. And so this goes all the way back to chapter 5, verse 21. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so there is this idea that even the, 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 the Christian master, as Paul writes here, has a responsibility to be properly ordered in relationship with the servant, with the slave. And threatening is not, that is out of order, okay? Threatening, abusing, um, harming uh, is, is out of order in relationship with the servant or if you're a supervisor, an employee, okay? So that's the key. Are we in order, in a properly ordered relationship? Or are we out of order? And that's, I think, the controlling image here. And this is the countercultural reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't do things the way the world does them. Even if the world is still doing them, we don't do them that way. And so you could take this section of the uh, letter of Ephesians in the same way we take Ecclesiastes as this reminder <laughs> that we live east of Eden, right? So the psalm talks about those who are opposing, the, the, the opposition of the psalm, and then the anger that, that David praised. Lord, may there, you know, uh, I forget, let me make sure I get it right. Something about may... May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Their backs bent forever. That imprecatory prayer, that God, make it right. All of that reminds us that we live east of Eden. We forget that. So we, so the those who you know, call for the uh, abolition of the Apostle Paul, right? You know, we can't trust this passage of Scripture because Paul should have been calling for the abolishment and the abolition of slavery. What we fail to understand is that all of Scripture is written against the backdrop of an East of Eden reality, that sin is a reality. And so we sometimes naively want the world to be other than it is. And scripture comes to us, this is the world as it is. This is a cultural, social, economic, embedded, given, and reality. And so what Paul is doing is trying to, into that context, how can we speak to subvert these cultural realities? How can we teach husbands, fathers, masters to behave 
at, differently as if a new order had begun. And so that's what's going on. So, sorry, I think I just, I, I said too many words too quickly there. And so just to wrap up, <clears throat> the challenge that we always face is how do we confront current cultural practices and evils? That is a challenge every generation, every nation, every Christian, everywhere must confront. And so how do we confront the realities of racism today? Slavery has been addressed, but the issues of race remain. Well, we can't just legislate sin out of the human heart, okay? How do we uh, address issues of uh, human sexuality? Um, how do we address issues of inequities in our own economy? What I would offer, reaching uh, for my cell phone, which I always keep on the floor, um, I believe there's going to come a day in the future when we look at these things, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now, and people are going to say, how in the world did parents let children have these things when they were 8 and 10 and 12 years old? That the, the cell phone and uh, social media is transforming the human family, the rise of teenage uh, depression, particularly adolescent girls, a rapid onset gender dysphoria, the social contagion that is kind of... The, that's morphing into like the transgender phenomenon. These are social contagions. They are not born that way realities. And so how do we speak to those challenges? How do we confront those? And how will future generations judge us? Okay. That, and so, so what we do is we give ourselves to live as those who have put off a former way of life and have now put on a new way of life and we live a life of love and we live sacrificially and, and we recognize that even scripture itself is embedded in a culture and historical setting and what the gospel is doing, it, it's, it's like calling for the abolition of sin. Why doesn't Paul call to abolish sin? Because sin is a fact of life. Slavery, human trafficking is still a fact of life. It is still a fact of life. And so we support <laughs> the Northern, well, it's changed its name, but, uh, it's Reset 180, but Northern Virginia Human Trafficking Initiative, Nova HTI is one of our mission partners, primarily sex trafficking, but that's still slavery and human trafficking. And then of course, slavery itself that continues in this world. This is what people do to each other. Humans treat each other this way, east of Eden. Sinful humans do these things. And the transformation comes when Christians who are in, who, 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 people who come to know Christ begin to live for Jesus Christ in every relationship that they have, in a marital relationship, a family relationship as a parent or a child, um, in a sibling relationship, in an employment relationship, in, an, uh, in every relationship that we have, we begin to live differently. And that is God's will. That is God's purpose. We're not going to abolish sin. Christ is going to redeem the world out of sin. And sadly, not all will be redeemed. Not all will embrace Jesus as the Christ. So hopefully this has helped. Um, just to, just to finish out, and this appoints us to next week, note what follows right after this uh, passage, 
We're going to talk about the spiritual battle. So that's what we're going to unpack next week, okay? Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we ask you uh, to have mercy on us when we do not confront the evils of our day or do not know how to confront the evils of our day. Uh, help us to live more faithfully and fully into the image and life of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we might live out of these truths into a, a more full discipleship. And forgive me, Lord, if anything I've said uh, has disgraced your good name. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O oh Lord, the Lord Almighty. And so we offer our prayers in the name of Jesus, who, who himself became a servant, <laughs> became a servant. And so we, we pray in his name, O oh Lord even as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Watch over you this day and forevermore. Amen.